go. But tonight, um, we like to usually start each week with a little bit of kind of, or sorry, each semester, especially the year, with, with just kind of some foundational things, things that we believe are always good to draw our minds back to whenever we're going to start studying the Word of God or whenever we're going to meet together. So that's what I want to do with you guys just a little bit tonight. Um, so for those of you who don't know, I, I have a wife named Amy, and then I have three kids, Ella and Hudson and Hadley. And my wife, Amy, has worked with children, like in an education, like in children's education, for, to, in some capacity, like ever since we moved to Stillwater about 12 years ago. So she started as a teaching assistant in kindergarten, in a kindergarten class at Highland Park Elementary here. And then she worked for a little bit at Skyline Elementary before we took a little bit of a break when, she, when we started having kids. And she was home with them for a little while. But then once they got old enough to start going to preschool or whatever it may be, she jumped back in and has been working actually with, with Scott's wife, Ryan. Uh, Amy and Ryan teach a class of Mom's Day Out class at Sunnybrook three days a week. And so she's been doing that um, for a long time. And I, I've never done any sort of early childhood education or anything like that. I, I work with like a little second grade boys small group on uh, Wednesday nights, but that's mostly just, you know, tackling kids and trying to keep them in one room and stuff like that. So not like a lot of teaching, you know. So I've never done that, but I've been around it enough through my wife and I've heard enough uh, stories about what it's like through my wife to say to all of you education majors, bless you, all right, and, and thank you for your sacrifice that you're about to make. Uh, I, know, uh, I know that it, there is something that is beautiful and also a little bit crazy about devoting your life to uh, like spending all day with other people's little terrors that are like running around, and, and it's, it is, it's one thing when it, they're your little punk children, but when they're other people's punk children, that's like another thing to kind of deal with. And, and so I really have a, a lot of respect for you. Um, if I could give you one piece of advice for those of you guys who are going to be teaching little kids, if you plan on having kids yourself, um, if at all possible, have your kids and name them first before you start teaching, all right? And, and here's why. And those of you who have parents who are teachers know why. It's because... Um, the right kind of kid, or the wrong kind of kid, we'll say that, the wrong kind of kid has the complete ability to ruin a name for forever, for everyone, all right? So you might, you might think you love the name Adeline, it's a really pretty little name, but, but all it takes is having the wrong Adeline in your class to spoil that name forever, right? So we had like some, we had some names that we really liked. I really wanted to name my, my son Jackson, I was really kind of leaning towards Jackson, but my wife, after one year in Skyline Elementary, was like, we will never name a kid Jackson in our entire lives. Because Jackson means whiny kid who's spoiled and doesn't leave me alone, right? And so that's what that means. And, and there's other names. Uh, Jordan got, got taken off the table real quick, all right? Caitlin got taken off the table. We will never name a kid Caitlin. Robbie, none of those, all right? So I'm sorry. If anybody in here is named Caitlin or Jordan or Jackson, I'm not saying you're whiny, all right? My wife would probably love you, just not your name, okay? So, um, so there are these names that get ruined as, as she's dealt with these difficult kids, and she has, over time, dealt with a lot of difficult kids. Uh, that's just part of being a teacher. That's, that's what you sign up for, and everybody kind of knows that. But I don't think she's ever had a kid as difficult as the one she had her very first year. Um, this kid by the name of Kenneth. And um, not that we were really going to roll with Kenneth as a name anyway for our kids, but Kenneth is definitely off the table after that first year. Uh, I actually met Kenneth. I actually got kind of 
partnered up with Kenneth to be his reading buddy. And, um, and I, have, I have truthfully in my, in my life never met an, a more like unruly, rebellious, violent kid than I have in Kenneth. Uh, Kenneth was, was that kid that is just constantly um, hitting other kids and pushing other kids and screaming at the teacher all the time. And, and one of Kenneth's things to do that he liked to do is if he had a toy in his hand, he loved to throw it at other kids, all right? And he loved to scream and yell back at the teacher and, and get angry at them. There's one time, Amy says, where he, he got so mad at the teacher, but he didn't have anything in his hands, and so he took his shoes off just so he could throw them at the teacher, all right? So that's Kenneth. And, uh, and Kenneth, they had reading time every day, and they would all sit on the reading mat, and they realized Kenneth could not sit on the reading mat because if he was within, like, striking distance of any kid, that kid was going to get punched, all right? That kid was going to get kicked. And so Kenneth ended up every reading time sitting with my wife. Uh, that, was, that was what he did. As a matter of fact, actually, for, for Amy, like, she was there to assist with the whole class, but her job quickly became just working with Kenneth all the time. And it was exhausting. And it was draining for her. And she would come home tired. Um, and yet, I probably hear my wife talk um, I probably don't hear my wife talk about any other kid more than I've heard her talk about Kenneth. My wife probably wonders less about um, all, their other, all the other kids she's ever had than, than she does Kenneth. She still today thinks about Kenneth and wonders. My wife, Amy, had this weird, profound, deep love for this kid who threw shoes at everybody and, and who punched every other kid and all those things and who made her life miserable. Um, which, which doesn't make sense on the surface because um, how, do you, how do you, you know, hate Jackson because he's whiny but love Kenneth even though he beats up everybody else? How, how is it that the kid who's ruining your day every day, the kid that's wearing you out, what is it that you have this fondness for him over so many of the other kids? It doesn't make sense until you know kind of the rest of how things work. It, it happened one day when at breakfast time, Kenneth, kind of out of nowhere, we, we don't know exactly what happened, if, he, if somebody said something or if he just kind of, if it just rose up in him, but he, he stood up and grabbed one of the benches that was there for breakfast and just threw it as hard as he could um, out across the gym. And this happened right as the principal walked into the little gym area where they were all eating. And so Kenneth got in huge amounts of trouble for this. Um, he was always kind of, you know, he was always going, getting sent to the principal's office. Things were always kind of happening, so it didn't take much. But uh, Kenneth got sent out to the hallway. And, of course, as usual, my wife got assigned to sit there so he wouldn't run away or so he wouldn't go do something or steal something or hurt somebody or anything like that. And so she sat next to him there in quiet for a few minutes. And then in the middle of that, after sitting there for a while, she just kind of asked him, Kenneth, why did you do that? And, and why do you do those things so often? And Kenneth just kind of sat there for a little bit. He's, he's five, he's six years old, he's in kindergarten. He can't articulate things very well, but, but he just said to her, I don't know. He said, I'm just mad, and I just wish that I had a family that cared about me. And, and that's as much as he was able to articulate or express in his little kind of mind. And, and Amy began to know and learn more of his story that Kenneth never knew his dad. Um, all he had was a mom who often liked to leave Kenneth alone at night in the trailer while she went out and partied or did whatever else. And Kenneth was often left to fend for himself. 
and, and Kenneth was like the one kid who's, whose parents didn't bring cupcakes on birthdays. Um, Kenneth was the kid who came wearing sometimes the same outfit multiple days in a row and, and all these things. And so in spite of who he was, in spite of all the things that he did, my wife grew to really love him because she knew his story. And, and that's what I want to kind of share with you tonight, that, that um, you can never really know a person until you know their story. You'll never really know what drives a person or what makes them the kind of person that they are, what motivates them until you know their story. I was 19 years old, right after my freshman year of college, me and three other friends um, went on kind of a missions trip, exploratory trip to uh, first Thailand, and then we went and spent some time in southern India. And, and so we were in Chennai, one of the largest cities there in the south, but we also spent some time in the rural areas. And my, my time in India was... Um, eye-opening. Um, and I saw a lot of things in India that I had uh, never seen before and that were very unsettling for a 19-year-old um, who, who had barely left the country and, and was just out of home and all those things. It, I saw some really crazy things, but probably nothing more unsettling than when, we, um, than when we went out in this rural area. We traveled a couple hours outside of Chennai and visited a few different things, but one of the things we visited there um, was a leprosy hospital. And, and I grew up, you know, in church and Sunday school hearing stories about leprosy, but never really saw, I, I didn't even actually know that leprosy existed anymore. I thought it was just kind of one of those things that we got rid of a long time ago. Um, but actually, there's still, they say they diagnose 136,000 new cases of leprosy in India every year. Um, that it's still very much alive there, even though it is like treatable, and even though you can, but, but a lot of people don't know that. And a lot of people live in areas where they don't have access to help. And so leprosy begins to take over and destroy their lives. But there's this clinic there in the area where they would help, and they let us walk through. I say let us. Um, it, like I said, it was kind of unsettling. It was unnerving to walk through. I, I don't know how much you know about leprosy and how it works. Uh, in the Bible... Leprosy is used as this kind of catch-all phrase for skin diseases, skin conditions. But more specifically, and this is what it's talking about a lot in the Bible, but not always. Um, what, what we refer to as leprosy today is also known as Hansen's disease. And what, what leprosy does is it's a bacteria that begins to eat away um, at your nerves, particularly in your hands and in your feet and in your face. And, and it begins to work away at some of the skin, but mostly at the nerves. And, and because your nerves start to die, I always thought, you know, leprosy made like fingers and noses and all that stuff fall off. That's not what happens. Leprosy kills the nerves in your fingers and in your hand or in your, in your toes and all those things in your feet. So that what happens is you don't know when you've hurt them. You don't know when you've burned them or when you've cut them or whatever, and you, and you might cut your foot and then walk around barefoot um, on dirt roads in India all day and never know, and it gets infected, and then things start to eat away at it, and then you start to lose toes and fingers and all those things. And, and even in extreme cases, they talk about in some of these areas where um, like rats will climb into bed at night and chew at fingers and toes, and the person never knows because they don't have sense, like any sensing in there. So we saw some, some, if I'm honest, some kind of gross things there in the leprosy hospital, things that were really disturbing. And, and I remember, though, walking into this one room, and there was this guy in the room, and he was working with one of the patients. And we found out that this guy was, he was either like really part-time staff, I think he was a volunteer. 
And, and that struck us as really crazy that this guy would sit here and volunteer his time in a leprosy clinic. I know people want to do good things, but of all, all the good deeds to do to, to spend your time volunteering day in, day out in a leprosy clinic um, just seemed crazy to us. And so I think one of us must have asked him why, because I remember him responding in Tamil. He didn't speak English, so he responded to, him, uh, to us through a translator. And, and when we asked him why, he began to explain. But as he began to explain, he held up a hand that was missing two fingers. And, and he said to us through the translator, because I was one of these patients several years ago. Because that used to be me. And because I didn't, I didn't see any hope. I didn't know how I was going to get healed, how I was going to get fixed. And then I came here and they saved me. And so that's why I come back here to help save other people. And it was when we knew his story that the rest of his life and actions began to make sense. You don't, you don't know a person until you know their story. You don't know what makes them who they are. You don't know what drives them and motivates them until you know their story. That's, that's why, Scott said it, we try to put such a heavy emphasis on knowing the Bible here and on teaching you the Bible, not just to know it, but to know how to study it. And, and we spend a lot of time trying to dig in deep to this. Um, because what we want for you more than anything else is to know Jesus. That's what we want when you leave here, to know Him deeply. And you cannot know a man until you know his story. And so that's why we teach you this. But, but see, there are a whole lot of people who get this wrong. There are a whole lot of people who miss this and how this whole thing works because they don't understand what this is. They don't understand what the Bible is. If you, if you ask people, what is the Bible, you'll get a lot of different answers. And there are a lot of them that, that I've kind of thought growing up, and, and even as an adult, I think that I've kind of seen a lot of things that people see this as. And, and, and probably the first and most obvious is that this is kind of like Christianity's rule book. This is God's rule book for how to live. These are, this teaches you what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. So if you follow this, then you'll be like good with God. That's not what this is. It's not what this is. There are no, a lot of people who see this as kind of like... Um, God's instruction manual for us. And that if you'll live your life according to the principles of this, then life will work out well for you because this is showing you how life is meant to be lived. That's not what this is. There are a number of people who say the Bible is the way you can learn how to be saved, how you can get to heaven. No, that's not what this is. And then others say, well, it's, it's Christianity's religious book. It's, it's, it's book of doctrine and beliefs. Like Muslims have the Quran and Mormons have the Book of Mormon and, and, and all these other religions have their book. This is Christianity that teaches their beliefs and their doctrines. No, that's not what it is. Listen, all of those things are in this book. All of those things are true. Okay? All of those things are, are summed up in here, but that's not what this is. What this is, is one grand giant story. And it's the greatest story, and it is the, the most important story you'll ever read from front to back. One story that ties together all the way through. And because a lot of people don't see that, they misunderstand how you're supposed to read this thing. And they misunderstand how you're supposed to apply this thing. They, they misunderstand this in a couple different ways, and that leads them astray. The first is that they don't see the story. They just see the rules, or they just see uh, the principles, or they just see the doctrines and the beliefs. And again, those things are good, and they're in there, and they're okay, but if you don't see the story, then you miss it. The other way that people get this really wrong, though, is they see the stories. They know the stories. They were taught the stories when they were kids, but what they think this is is a series of stories about people. 
So stories about like David and Goliath, or about Daniel and the lion's den, or, or Noah and the ark. I noticed actually as I was thinking through this, all the stories have and in them. Daniel and the lion's den, Noah and the ark, Jonah and the whale, Joshua and the battle of Jericho, Nehemiah and the wall. It's all the ands, okay? So, but they see them as this series of stories about people, about David, about Daniel. Um, let's learn about the Apostle Paul. And because they see this as a book about people, they begin to think that this story is also about them. They, they end up inserting themselves in the story and, and making this book about them. Here's how it works, and this is the way I was taught much of my life, and I'm, I'm pretty sure most of you were probably taught the same way. That we open this up to... To, uh, to a book somewhere in the Bible, and we go, let's, let's learn about David and Goliath. And we read through David and Goliath, and we go, see, David had his giants that he had to face. And this is how he faced his giants. But the truth is, all of us have our own giants that we have to face in life. And so, let's learn from David how you can face your giants in life. And what we quickly do is we make this story about you. Or Daniel had to face his lions. He had to go through difficult things, things that scared him. And all of us in our own life, we have different lions, different things that we're afraid of, different things that keep us from obeying God. And so let's read through this story and learn how we can stand up and do the right thing like Daniel did. And we make the story about us. We make the story about you or, or the, the disciples when they're out on the boat and the storm comes through and, and a preacher stands up and says, what do you do when you face the storms of life? Well, let's open up and see what the disciples did in the middle of their storm. And we make the story about you. I'm going to tell you something. This is a story, and it's not about you. And it's not here for you to just learn some principles for how you can face difficult situations in your life. It's not what this is. And because we misunderstand that, we often misapply this. We often misunderstand the stories and we fail to apply them or live them out properly. That's not what this thing is. This thing is something much bigger than that. This is one big story about one person, and that is God. And it is a story that unfolds in four major plot movements. Four major plot movements, and this is important to catch. What the Bible does a number of times in Genesis is going to be like the perfect place to see this. The Bible often lays out these patterns in their stories that a lot of times we miss, that we overlook, and then those patterns play themselves out over and over again in Scripture. And when we see those things, it helps us understand what God is trying to teach us. And so this is the grand overall pattern. Um, that we see in Scripture, this four-part movement. Some people call it the meta-narrative. If you've been to the table very long at all, you've probably noticed it sitting above our heads. Or those of you who go to Sunnybrook might see it up on the left-hand side. We've got these four big words up there that summarize what the grand story of Scripture is. And, and I want to just briefly walk you through that, just taking a few minutes on each to help you grasp where the story of Scripture is going and what it's trying to show us so that we can see these patterns ourselves as we begin to read through. Um, so the first one is, as I said, creation. And creation, this movement plays out basically in two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2. And with each of these, I'm going to give you just one verse, one kind of summary verse for it, um, if you will, that you can learn. That we, we could throw out a lot of verses on this, but let me just give you one, and this one's obvious, and you, you've heard it before, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this is how this movement goes. When things began, God made all things for His glory. 
made everything seen and unseen, made it for his own glory and out of his own joy, spilled over into creation, making all of these things that express who he is and express his goodness. And it says this, that when he made it, it was good because he is good. It was good because God is good. That's what makes those things so good. And then, as kind of the crowning achievement of this creation, as the pinnacle of it, he created human beings made in the image of God, not because he was lonely, okay, um, but because he wanted to, and in his glory. So he created human beings made in his image, and he invited those human beings into a partnership with him, which we're going to talk about in a few weeks, into a partnership with him in which they were able to display his glory and cultivate the creation that he had made, help to care for the creation that he made. But um, early in the story, we see that human beings have a decision to make. And that is, we said it earlier, everything was good because God was good. Here's, here's the question they have to face. Do I believe that? Do I believe that God is good? Do I believe that He's trustworthy? Or do I believe that He's holding out on me? Do I think that there's something He's not telling me? Do I think that there's something that would really make me happy, but God's holding it back from me and I'm going to have to go find it myself? And that's the question that every human being has had to ask for all eternity. And it's a question that the very first ones um, failed to answer properly. They chose to believe that God was holding out, so they were going to have to take happiness for themselves. And so they went for that, and they went, uh, fell into sin. And so we entered into this next phase that we call the fall, which takes place in Genesis 3. And, and we won't get into all the ins and outs of it. We'll talk about it soon. But the idea of the fall is this, that humanity chose um, against God and they lined themselves at odds with Him. And this theme, ever since Adam and Eve, began to take over all the world where everyone lives in darkness and rebellion, standing at odds against, standing separated from the very one that they were made for, the one that brings them life, the one that brings them joy. Sin separates them from that, and so they are no longer allowed to be with Him. The, the kind of theme verse here would be Romans 3.23, another famous one. Whoops. Not Bowman's, Romans. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is this truth, that everyone was made to know Him and to, to enjoy Him and to display His glory. And yet every person has something in them that is broken because of sin. And so they fall short of that ability to display His glory to the world around them. By the way, this is, um, this is the one part of the story that you don't even have to be a Christian to believe. Um, all you have to do is like turn on the news or scroll through your social media feed, or, or even just look in the mirror to realize that there's something wrong with us, that, that something's not right. And every, every human being feels it in their soul that there's something that's not quite right. We felt it from the beginning, from the time our first father and mother chose to walk away and go their own path. But the good news is that the story doesn't end there. That God doesn't leave the world in darkness, but instead the king comes to reclaim his stuff, comes to bring it back. And that leads us into this third movement, which we call redemption. 
that He comes in love to redeem all things back to Himself. But this comes at a price because if, if people were made for God but sin has separated them, something has to be done about that sin that separates them from God. That has to be taken away. That has to be paid for. And so that's where Jesus enters in. God's Son sent into the world to pay the price for our sins, to take our sins upon uh, Himself so that we would no longer have to pay for them, so that they would be removed and we could know them. Here's your theme verse, 2 Corinthians 5.19. My, my marker's going out on me. There you go. 5.19 says this, In Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against Him. Um, but here's, here's where this is important to recognize. Most people go, oh yeah, redemption. I know where that comes. That comes in Matthew. That comes in New Testament when Jesus comes. That's true, but that's not fully true. This movement of the story, do you know where it begins? Genesis. Many think Genesis 3. That in the very moment when humanity enters into the fall and enters into sin, God already begins His plan to make things right. God is already at work to redeem the world back to Himself, to bring humanity back to Himself and the rest of the universe back to Himself. And so this is really important when you read the Bible to know this, that every, um, every part of Scripture is either doing one of two things. It is either pointing towards Jesus or it is flowing out of Him. So everything that you read, and that's not just the New Testament. No, the Old Testament, Genesis, where we're going to be this year, we're going to see how Genesis sets us up and plants these little seeds that are going to grow and ultimately point us towards Jesus. Every bit of Scripture either points to Him and leads us up to Him, or it flows out of Him as we understand the world through Him after we've seen Him. And so to understand the Scriptures, you need to be able to see that. Um, but a lot of times when we tell like the gospel story, we end there. God made you and he loves you, but then you sinned and ran away from him. But the good news is Jesus came and died for you. So now you can be back with him and you can go to heaven when you die. And end of story. But the Bible doesn't end there. The Bible's not just interested in you getting saved so you can go to heaven when you die. That's, that's not the end goal in and of itself. Um, God is at work actually, the scriptures say, to restore all things that he's already actually at work to make things right. When Revelation 21 comes and tells us what happens in the end, it doesn't say, and then everybody goes to heaven and spends eternity there. It doesn't say, and then all the people who put their faith in Jesus spend millions and millions of years in, in heaven forever. No, it says, God makes a new heaven and a new earth, and that these two things come together. And so if you want to know what eternity will be like, in some ways, it it will be like, well, look around. Like, we're going to be on a new earth, restored and made new. We're going to be with the new heavens together with it. God is working to make things back the way they ought to be, restoring them to what they were. And so this one takes place, and you could argue this, this starts in Genesis 3 if you want to. You really start to see this take place once we get to the prophets. Um, Isaiah starts to talk about this, and it plays out all the way through Revelation Okay, and this plays out through, uh, redemption plays out through Revelation 2. Um, so this idea of restoration that God's at work in, and what the Bible tells us is actually he's already started it, and he started it in you. 
If you are a believer in Jesus, if you've placed your faith in Him, He has already began to do this work in you, making you right by putting Himself in you. And actually, here's your key verse for, uh, for restoration. It comes from Revelation 21.3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. This is when things are restored and made right, when God is with humanity. But, but what the Bible teaches is for those who are in Christ, that's already actually happened. That God has placed His Holy Spirit in us. And, and that we have become a new creation through those things. Now, as I said, this pattern will repeat itself throughout the Scriptures. So when you see it and understand it, you will be able to understand the rest of the Scriptures better. You will see this idea of creation, fall, redemption, restoration play over and over again. It happens in Jacob's life. It happens when you read through David, you see shades of it. It happens in Paul. It happens to Israel over and over and over again. And here's kind of the crazy thing about this story. Um, is that these four movements, these four plot movements, actually still continue every day. Still are happening each day in people's lives all around the world. In fact, every one of you in this room is actually living out this story right now. Every one of you is at least halfway through this story. Ha has at least lived out the first two segments of this. In fact, this is your story that I'm telling you. I know what you're thinking. No, Drew, you just told me that this isn't your story. You spent a lot of time telling me this is not my story. Um, I didn't say that. I said it's not about you. I said it's about God. It's His story, but He invites you into it. And He invites you to let it be your story. And so, I don't really know a lot of you, and I don't know your story, but I kind of know your story. Like, I know this, that each and every one of you in here was made for God that you were made in His image, which is, by the way, something amazing. And you, you are not even aware of the implications of all that that means. We're going to spend a couple weeks actually talking about that because that idea, what you are as an image bearer, is so huge and most people don't even know how big that is. And so we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But, but you were made in the image of God to display His greatness, to know Him, to display His glory to the world. And, and I don't know your origin story. I don't, I don't know your background. I don't know um, some of you in here grew up in like a Christian home all your life and you grew up hearing this story from the time you were little in church and in Sunday school and VBS at camp and in your home and all of those things. And some of you maybe, uh, maybe can count on one hand the amount of times you were in church growing up with your family. And some of you grew up in a super loving family that you love be around and you love going home and visit. And some of you could not wait to get out of the home because it was one of the most dysfunctional, unhealthy things you've ever been a part of. Um, but I know that every one of you has the same beginning, made to know God and made to be in His glory. And then I know this, at some point in your life, something in you started to wonder if God was holding out on you. And you may not have been able to articulate it that way, but there was something in you that thought maybe I could find happiness elsewhere. And that leads to sin, that leads to the fall. When we try to sum up what the fall is for like human beings, we, we sum it up in these two words. You can know what your fall looks like by these two words, uh, idols and identity. Um, the idols that you build your life around, that you give your life to, the idols that have a hold in your heart, and the identity that you try to build yourself, uh, build for yourself. 
that, that's something separate from God. And listen, I'm not saying that that happens more frequently in college. I'm just saying it's definitely like highlighted in college. Um, that people are free in new ways to run after idols and identity like they never have before. And I want to share, you, share with you just one real hard truth, okay? Um, most people, I think, wish that when they go off to school, that they could maybe leave their idols behind while keeping their identity. Um, but the truth is that just the opposite usually happens. Um, that we often leave our identity behind. Whatever you were back in high school, the smart one, the funny one, the pretty one, the athletic one, you, you quickly find when you get to school that none of that matters anymore, that you're not that anymore. You're not the fastest kid on the playground and you're not the smartest kid in class. And no matter how many times you got picked first for dodgeball or kickball or whatever it was, nobody cares anymore, right? And, and you quickly find this identity that you spent years crafting goes away within like a week of being here. And yet some of the things that you hoped to leave behind you, the addictions or, or the unhealthy relationships or the things, those sins that have grabbed the hold of you that if I were to say them out loud and somebody were to know that they were yours, you would never show your face in here again. Those sins that you hoped to leave behind so often follow you because you bring them with you in your heart. Because they, they jump on for the ride when you come here. Um, and, and every one of us has experienced this. Our hope, though, is that you've experienced the rest of the story, that you are redeemed, that, that God loved you, not with the passive love that's kind of like, hey, you screwed up again, but it's okay, I'll let it pass, but with like an active love, with a seeking love, with a redeeming love that came to find you and bring you back and make you whole again. And, and He sent His own Son to die to make that your story, but not just that, He comes to restore you and to make you a new person. Here's the really good news about the gospel that I didn't get told sometimes when I was growing up. Even though I grew up in a great church with a great family, um, Jesus doesn't just come to save you from the guilt of your idols. He comes to save you from their grip as well. He doesn't just come to save you from like the shame you feel. He comes to save you from their control that you don't you don't have to keep going back to that same thing anymore. It doesn't have to have power over you anymore because He is making you into a new creation to redeem and to restore you. This is your story. And this is what we want you to know. This is what we want you to know about yourself because um, you cannot know a person until you know their story. And often we get most off when we forget our story. And so that's what we want for you to be able to see who you are. Do you know who you are? You're Kenneth. You're the, you're the grubby little, like, you know, beautiful mess that's broken, that, that, that's messed up and angry and screwed up in so many ways, but is still deeply loved by someone bigger and stronger than you. Um, you're, you're that guy in the leprosy hospital, at least those of you who've given your life to Jesus. Somebody who was once devastated by a disease that was taking over your life and then you found salvation, were saved for it, and now you get to work alongside the doctor to help other people find that same, that same healing and that same hope. You are, because of this story, if you are in Christ, a son or a daughter of the King, and, and a whole lot like the Bible, your entire life is meant to do one of two things, either be pointing to Jesus or flowing from Him. And actually, you ought to be doing both together. Uh, we call this here at the table a gospel-centered life. That... Um, I let Jesus' identity and actions 
shape every aspect of my life. Who he is, what he's done, his story shapes and becomes my story. And that's what we want for everyone who spends their time in his campus ministry as they go through, that when they leave, that they've got a life built around Jesus, that they know their story, and that they're able to live that story out. That's our hope for you. And when we start Genesis in this next couple weeks, we're going to get to see how that story starts, and we're going to see how that story plays out through history, but then how it plays out in your own life as well. And we're really excited to get into that. We're excited to have you around for that and, and hope that you will Hope that you'll be able to join us in that. Let me pray for us, and then Rachel will come share a couple things. We'll be done. God, again, I just pray this, that you would make our story real to us, that you would help students in here and myself to understand more who you are and what you've done and how that shapes us. Make us gospel-centered people this year who build our lives around Jesus who He is and what He's done by Your Spirit's power. And in His name I ask, Amen. 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 Alright, my name is Rachel Vincent. A couple things we want you to be aware of. Um, you all should have